You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our gracious Lord, in whom all good gifts come and in whom our destinies are given, we're grateful for this chance to come together on this great Sunday, recognizing all the saints that have preceded us and all those that will follow us. I pray, O oh Lord, that what we do will enable us also to contribute to that great legacy of those who have given their lives in witness of Thee. In this I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a seat. We've got some more over here. Um, well, as this says here, it's a little different from what's in the uh, bulletin. Uh, what I'm wanting to emphasize here is Christianity admits the culture wars. It's a rather common believe said often in our culture that we're in a post-Christian culture, that the church's witness is no longer relevant to modernity, that our society has moved beyond taking seriously Christianity at all. In fact, it's a foreign language to many people. And so it's passé. It'll always be spoken of in the past tense. Well, I, it, I, obviously I cannot refute that claim to, you know, in this series, but I want to address that. I want to address why is, why, why is that I don't think that's true. But one sort of introduction I want to make on that is that I never, we should never think that the main purpose and the goal of the church is to conquer culture. That's not our job, to be the supreme imperial force in society. Our primary purpose, the calling of the church, is to be a witness of Jesus Christ. All right. What I want to try to do in this little brief series is to show how in the midst of this cultural conflict that we're living in, what can we say to this conflict, this, this quadrant, this boiling mess that our society is in, that would enable us to effectively witness of Christ in this, this situation. I had mentioned uh, that... I had read this book here called Adrift, which I think is a very profound book. It's a hundred charts trying to indicate what the author here, Scott Galloway, a NYU professor, uh, tries to say about why our culture is adrift. We're not for sure where we're going in light of this. And I want to look at a couple of the charts that he has here that was set the stage for what I want to talk about today. He thinks that our society is coming unraveled in many ways. We're becoming more and more incorrigible to one another. Uh, and part of that is that we're lacking the ability to form relationships. Uh, even though they may be superficial relationships, there's the inability to tolerate other people to such a point that the purpose is the relationship, not just to agree with everyone. He has a statistic here that marriage rates have declined precipitously in our culture. Uh, in marriage rates per 1,000 are down to 5.1% in 2020. Uh, that has dropped a lot since the 1940s. He also has a statistic here on uh, one, one second. a chart here about uh, th this one I find rather disturbing quite honestly even though uh, it, in, in some ways it may fit within a lot of sort of political ideas in our culture but that 
concerns about your children marrying people of the opposite political party. It's a major concern for a lot of families now. Uh, In 1960, of the Democrats, only 4% of Democrats were worried about that. Now, 45% of all families that identify themselves as Democrat really, really worry about their children marrying a Republican. Uh, Also in 1960, only 4% of Republicans worried about that, but now 35% of that worry about that. It's not that, you know, it's, it's not that we're learning how to get along. We're wanting to learn how to secede from one another. Also, this one also is a disturbing one. Uh, outlook at birth by gender. Uh, girls are three times more likely to experience abuse than boys. Uh, three times more likely to self-harm or earn 84 to 93 cents for every dollar a man makes, and two times more likely to be passed over for a promotion as a, as a parent. Well, if a woman is married, and as a parent, she's two times more likely to pass over for a promotion. Now, for the boys, I think it's even more dire. Uh, they're less likely now to graduate from college than any time in our society. Two times more likely to overdose with drugs, three and a half times more likely to commit suicide, and nine times more likely to go to jail. Are these just a few of the 100 charts that he has here to show that our culture here is adrift? Now, these are symptoms. These are not the cause of our culture being adrift. I think these represent something more profound, more deep in our culture that's going on, that's causing these kinds of problems to emerge, this melee that we're dealing with. That's what I'm trying to address in this. What, what, what's happening fundamentally to our society that's causing these significant social problems that indicate that we're losing our cohesion and our coherence with one another? All right, uh, let me get this right. Last week I looked at Gnosticism ancient movement that is still very much prevalent today. Today I'm going to be looking at Epicureanism, which was also an ancient philosophy that has become more popular, I think, in our culture. Next week I'm going to look at Cynicism, and then on the fourth week I had changed it. Originally I was going to talk about Stoicism, but I'm going to talk about what's called the economic person. I'll be talking basically about, if you know who Gecko is from the movie Wall Street, you know who he is? You ever seen that? And I think it's a profound movie, by the way and also Karl Marx. In some ways, they're quite similar. They're just two sides of one coin. They define people only in economic terms. And I'm going to argue that that's part of the problem in our contemporary society. Well, what I want to concentrate on today is Epicureanism. Give me a minute to get there. All right, Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher. You see him there, at least a statue of him, a rather stately-looking statue of him. He lived in a very volatile time in Greek society, born 341 and died in the year 270. If you know much about your Greek history, uh, the most uh, devastating event that happened in the history of Greece was the Peloponnesian War that went on from 431 to 400 B.C., uh, which devastated the Greek city-states. It was a war primarily between Athens and Sparta. 
That war followed right after one of the great achievements of Greek civilizations in which they beat the Persian Empire, the Battle of Salamis, one of the great military victories, and stopped the expansion of this Eastern Empire into the West. And it showed what all the Greeks could do if they just got together. It wasn't long after that battle that they went back to their warring ways and Sparta and Athens went to war to a point where Sparta won the war only because they had the last person standing. And it completely devastated the economy, much of the architecture and so on, definitely the morale of uh, the Greek society. It was during this time that three of the most famous Greek philosophers arose. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And what they wanted to do in their own magnificent and brilliant ways was to restore the greatness of Greek society. In some ways, they were aristocratic in the genuine sense of the word. Philosophers, that is, to restore the best. Aristus means best, the rule of the best. And so Plato comes up with this great idea of the philosopher king. That's how we can be great as Greek again. However, though, Interesting enough, even though we still read Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, you can write books, you can get dissertations, I mean PhDs, all this stuff on these, but they did not win the day. They really didn't. They were not all that influential in their culture. The group of philosophers that followed them were far more influential than what they were, and they were the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the Cynics. What they have in common, even though they were quite different in some profound ways, but what they had in common is that they wanted to come up with a philosophical way to help us manage our lives. Help us how to handle the decline of Greek society. If you know, again, much about your Greek history, it was Philip of Macedon who came down and basically conquered all those southern city-states and consolidated the empire. His son named... Alexander the Great, even expanded almost all the way to India, down into Africa, and so on. And everyone was thinking that, again, we would become a great society. But it wasn't long that a civil war broke out, and when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided among four different generals, and they were warring with one another. And the Greeks began to think that they had lost it, that they were no longer worth surviving as a culture. And so the best that we could do is just to manage our own personal lives. And so these philosophical movements called Hellenism arose, and Epicureanism was one of them. And that is, in a sense, just as Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates were philosophers as aristocrats, the Epicurean Stoics and the Cynics were philosophers as therapy, therapists. How can you have happiness in a decaying world? How can you have a peace of mind when there's just melee in society. How can you do that? And this is where Epicurus makes his his great contribution. In some ways, we don't have much of what he he wrote, by the way. A lot of that was lost. A lot of people talked about him, but there are enough that we can sort of piecemeal together that his philosophy can be divided into three different areas. First, in terms of physics. Now, he he was not original in this. He borrowed a lot of ideas from a preceding pre-Socratic group of philosophers named the atomists. And for Epicurus, all of reality is just atoms. Now, the word atom from Greek means cannot be divided. At the basis of everything are these little, microscopically small, infinitesimally small material objects that cannot be divided. They were neither created nor will they ever be destroyed. They are permanent and eternal. It's just a random number of these, and they fall through the void, just falling through space. There's just emptiness out there, and all these atoms 
or falling through this. And in the physics of the atomists, and Epicurus adopted that, was that at one point in the falling of the atoms, something swerved. They hit another atom, they hit another atom, and over a, a large, long period of time, all that swerving came up with you sitting right here. You're just a result of a particular swerve. That's it. Even the gods are this way, according to Epicurus. The gods are but just this kind of interesting configuration of atoms that have sort of come together. And all of reality, according to Epicurus, can be explained in this strict materialistic sense. It has no rhyme or reason to it. There's no great providential plan. There's no goal to it. It's not even evolving. It's just happening randomly. And this is the basis of all reality. All right, how can we make sense out of our lives in this? What's going on in my soul when I realize that I'm just a bunch of atoms that have been sort of configured together in this way? Well, what Epicurus argued is that what we need is a good scientific mindset to handle this problem. No theology, no mythology, no folklore. What we need is hardcore empirical science. And once you come up with a genuine, truthful scientific explanation of the world, and that is we're basically atoms falling through the void, that is all that we need. We don't need anything else from that. That's enough. Don't go to the scriptures. Don't go to the, the, the Delphi, Oracle of Delphi. Just look at what science can tell us about this. Well, that's rather bleak. It sort of, in some ways, sort of discounts our intentions, our aims, our deliberations, our desires, and anything, uh, those kind of very profound personal drives that we have. But for Epicurus, though, what he argued is that in that we're just atoms falling through the void, we have certain pleasures because of that. Where they come from, I don't know. He doesn't explain this. But we have pleasures. You're a pleasure-driven person. You have aims, and they are aims that are really defined by whether you gain pleasure and avoid pain. Pleasure becomes the chief driving force of our life. It's the goal of our life. How to gain pleasure and avoid pain. If we gain pleasure in the body, and you can do that in a number of ways, like eating good food, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, or having good friends, that was very important for Epicurus. In fact, probably of all philosophers, he and Aristotle and maybe a few others wrote more about friendship than any other. So friendship was very important. It, you can have great pleasure for it, but there's also just the absence of pain as well. Your body can have an absence of pain. Your mind, let me, sorry. Your mind also can have pleasure. You can have good thoughts or you can be free from anxiety. And if you have the absence of pain in the body, it's called aponia, I see there. And if you have the absence of pain in the mind, that's called anorexia. That is tranquility. That is total peace. That is being at one with yourself when you are free from anxiety. To get there, what we need, according to Epicurus, is just good common sense, and that's prudence. We don't, once again, need supernatural knowledge. We really don't need logic. We don't need a lot of kind of, you know, uh, esoteric, mystical things to help us do that. What we need is just prudence, good common sense. And one of the first things that we must do prudently is, one, deny that the gods have anything to do with us. The gods are too perfect, according to 
uh, Epicurus. They're too blissful to get involved in the world that we live in. The world that we live in is just a mess. It's just atoms falling through void. Don't look for any hidden meaning in this. There is no natural law that is working itself out, bringing goodness in the world. Nothing like that. And so what we need is just this idea that my life is all that I have. There's no divine purpose for it. Nor will there be a divine judgment for me either. And when I'm alive, I'm alive. And when I'm dead, I'm not alive. So don't worry about your death. Don't even fret about it. If you can just have this scientific point of view, then these things will subside and you can gain this atorexia. Now again, this was very, very persuasive in a society that was in disarray and hopelessness. How can you make sense out of your life when nothing in the world makes any sense? And Epicurus comes on with this idea and becomes very influential. What, what? One second, I'm sorry. Well, I don't know how that one got there. But I'll go ahead and start with it. I was going to end with this. Um, Epicureanism is famous for eating. In fact, there are probably shows called the Epicurean. I think there is. And some people you know, call a good meal an Epicurean delight, you know, pleasure of eating. And I'll say, you know, I love to eat. Uh, I hope when I die, I'm eating a good pecan pie. I'll die a happy man. Uh, I, I, I'm, one, I, uh, I'm, I'm sort of a stickler on what I spend money on, but it, I don't mind spending money on good food. I, for some reason, I'm an Epicurean that way. I like good food. I like how it tastes. I enjoy the work that goes into it. But just parenthetically, any of you ever see the movie, wonderful movie called Babette's Feast? It is a great movie. You ought to see Babette's Feast. Makes you want to go out and eat good food, good French food in particular. Well, anyway, uh, I've not eaten at this restaurant. It's in Chicago, near the river. I looked it up because I read a review about it in this book, Ars Vata, The the Fate of Inwardness and Return of the Ancient Arts of Living. has a chapter here on Epicureanism. He talks about how there is what he calls a foodie culture in our society. Now, it's not just eating, not like going to, I know that sounds rather condescending in my part, like Golden Corral. I mean, you don't think of Epicurus when you go to Golden Corral. You just think of a lot of calories, don't you? Well, that, that, that's not an eating delight. It's pleasurable, I guess. It meets some sort of need that way. But if you go to Anina restaurant, it's a, it's a five, what, diamond star restaurant, I think, highest rating I looked at the menu this morning uh, to get a table per person there. It's $390. Uh, and they, they, they promote themselves as book your experience. It's an experience. It's not just food. It's not just calories. It's not, just, it's not even just um, you know, eating a good steak or something. It is a phenomenon. They present themselves as a way of presenting a special kind of experience of pure pleasure. And some restaurants are very good at that and you know some don't even aspire to do it. But in our society, we have this idea that really the most important thing, what we can justify our lives, our goals, our money towards, is if it gives us this pure pleasure, this sort of moment free from anxiety, free from worry, without doubt, without pain, and we can relish in the moment that it is here. This is pure Epicureanism. 
uh, I got a little ahead of me there on that restaurant, but uh, I wanted to start with this one. Uh, this is a book, very influential, won the Pulitzer Prize in the year 2012. He's kind of a, oh, I don't know, maybe a, a backyard philosopher, and uh, he has uh, done a lot of art, and he did a whole lot with this book, Stephen Greenblatt, and it's called The Swerve, if you remember back with uh, Epicurus's physics, that is, atoms move because they have been bumped into each other, it's caused a swerve. Well, what Greenblatt says, he has an interesting thesis, almost like Dan Brown in the Da Vinci, da Vinci Code, that modernity, according to Greenblatt, in this 2011 book called The Swerve, started in the year 1417, when a man named Poggio Bacciolini discovered Lucretius's long-lost book called On the Nature of Things in a Monastery in Italy. People had forgotten about the book, and he ran across it and he began to read it. And it's Epicurean. That is, we just live in a materialistic world that doesn't have a rhyme or reason to it. The most that we can do with our life is to live simple pleasures, to be in control of our own destiny, not to think that we have to submit to some overriding plan or some natural law, or definitely not a supernatural. And according to Greenblatt, modernity starts there. Now, he makes, in some ways, a rather tendentious argument, I think, but he thinks the, the Renaissance humanism actually begins here in 1417 with this discovery of this Epicurean document. Well, what Bocciolini and many others do now, not all the Renaissance was this way, but some of the Renaissance was there. It's a rejection of religious dogma and authority. And because it's based on just strict materialism and that we can understand it through empirical analysis, it is a reinforcement of the dominance of science in our society. And as a consequence, just like with Epicurus, this idea from this book on the nature of things is that the primary goal that we have is to find and to relish these lived or lived experiences. Or what I was talking about with the eating of great food is just the experience, not the food itself. And that is done through immediate sensations. Don't When you look at me, don't look for anything else behind me. There is no natural law back there. There's no divine will. There's no sort of hidden plan at work in all this. It's just just my colors, my sound, my shape. This, that's all it is. Don't look for anything else. That's confusing. In fact, if anything, it causes anxiety because you wonder if I got it right. And your experience is your life journey. And this becomes one of the prominent ideas of modern Epicureanism. You need your journey. You need to be on a path of experiencing these pure moments of sensation, of pleasure. You're on a journey moving from one moment to the next, relishing, you know, throwing yourself in to those particular moments. One of the uh, uh, probably most vivid depictions of this Epicurean lifestyle especially as articulated there by uh, Greenblatt, is the movie Eat, Pray, Love. Julia Roberts, anyone see this movie? I have to admit, I did not watch all of it. I've only seen portions of it. Anyway, this book here, or this chapter on Epicureanism, uses it as the epitome of modern Epicureanism. 
Let me read a little paragraph here that's the synopsis of the movie. Uh, in the eat, pray, love sensation, the premise of the story explored here most explicitly through the film treatment, it's actually from a book, is one woman's growing concern that what passes for successful adult life in the early 21st century is not all that is cracked up to be. The film opens in Bali, which is in Indonesia, where Liz, Julia Roberts, on assignment for a slick travel magazine, meets a wise old medicine man named Kuit, or Kutut, who sends her on a path of self-discovery. His advice is find balance. Find balance. The action moves episodically to her house in New York, where we witness her growing discontentment with her married life, and then to another place in New York, the apartment of the handsome, struggling actor in whose arms she jumps to get free of her marriage. The rest of the movie takes place in Italy, where she eats, India, where she prays, and Bali, where she revisits the medicine man, and under his wings learns to love again. So she is on a journey. She is talking to Philippe, who is her lover, the actor. And she is telling him that she is moving on, that her journey has taken her to other experiences. And he is arguing with her that I know you love me, and I love you, and we should be committed to one another. You need to show me that you love me by your commitment to me. And her reply here, which is in some ways a synopsis of the whole theme of the, of the movie, is, I do not need to love you to prove that I love myself. I do not need to make a commitment to you to show that I have found balance. I do not need in any way to try to see into you some sort of great vocational call, something drawing me to invest my very soul into what you are also invested in, to tell you that I have lived a life of good experiences. That's what this is all about. And it was a very popular movie. I have to admit it's not my kind of show. But uh, it... Um, uh, I have got my slides here backwards. Hold on one second. Here we go. It does epitomize so much of the modern experience. This is a fundamental idea, this Epicurean idea notion that we're all on a journey. We're on a journey to more experiences. Here's another book here that is also indicative of this Epicurean spirit. It's called Travel with Epicurus by a man named Daniel Klein. Any of you familiar with it? Well, the book starts off, uh, he is, uh, at the moment I can't quite remember, but he, he, he's like me, you know, he's old. He's, I'm, I'm 71, he's probably at least 70. Uh, he's retired. And he has gone to the dentist, and he has some bad teeth, and the dentist gives him, you know, the sort of estimated cost of replacing a lot of these teeth, and it was just astronomical, and he said, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And so instead of paying all that money to have his uh, teeth fixed, uh, he decides to go to Greece instead. And uh, I guess he endured the pain, but nonetheless, he goes to Greece, and he goes to these islands, and there... He finds these older men, like himself, that had come to a total peace of mind. They sit around and they play chess and they watch the, the waves come in. They talk with one another. They enjoy every day. 
It's a simple pleasure. They're happy. They're totally content. And that's all they need in their life. And he is thinking that he has wasted his life so much by working too hard, by being way too ambitious, by delaying a lot of his pleasures and gratification, hoping for something good at the end, that he should have been like these people, live day to day. Don't ever be so committed to what you did yesterday that you need to try to recapture it, to perpetrate it, to continue it. Because each day gives you your own pure, the, its own pure experience. And that's what you must maximize. And so he writes this book, A Journey to a Greek Island in Search of a Fulfilled Life. And again, it's not a fulfilled life in which you see God. That's not it. It's not a fulfilled life in which you've made this absolute, tremendous contribution to the well-being of humanity. That's not it. It's a fulfilled life when you are content with the simple pleasures in which you see every day exactly what it is, just atoms falling through the void, and you have found peace of mind in doing that. That's what it is. And that's what he's arguing is left for us in modernity. You know, the 20th century was horrible, if you think about it. Of course, they did a lot of great things, but look at all the people died in wars in the 20th century. And he and many others come to this conclusion that the 21st century may be the same. At the end of the 21st century, what will it show us? Mayhem, cruelty, callousness, social unrest, or a society adrift. How can you make peace out of your own life in such a culture? And so what they do is that these people here think that it's Epicureanism that's going to do it for us. This is one of the major ideas. It's not the only major idea. It's not. There are others out there. Like I said last week, I think Gnosticism is one of those fundamental ideas. Next week, I'm going to look at cynicism. And the following week, look at Marxism and, and sort of unabashed uh, wealth accumulation. Those are competing ideas, creating this cauldron that we live in in modernity. Well, Epicureanism says you should choose what makes you happy and pleases you. That's what you have to do. Don't, don't worry about anything else. You must choose for your own happiness. You must avoid what makes you feel any pain, any cost, any sense of truly powerful struggles in your life. Avoid those things. Definitely don't worry about your fate. Definitely don't worry about eternity. There are no such things as that. Shun overindulgence in bodily pleasures. This is part of the prudence, the virtue of prudence in Epicureanism. I mean, if you let's say if you like to drink wine, okay, and you know after about you know six months you're drinking a couple of bottles a day, you well you'll undermine the pleasure principle of drinking a glass of wine and doing it. So nothing overindulging. Epicureanism is not rampant hedonism. I mean, it's hedonistic in that it seeks pleasure, but it's not rampant hedonism. Desire mostly what is natural and necessary. If it uh, is a natural pleasure, go for it. If it is something that you must do materially, physically, then that's what you should do. And at all costs, you must see yourself on a journey. Don't ever be weighed down too much with one thing that will require you to invest your own self-identity, your own sense of purpose in life with that thing. You have to be free of this. This is the modern Epicurean, and I think that's very much part of our society. 
Now, even though a lot of people are drawn to this, and I could see where it could be of some great therapeutic value in a person's life that lives in a very unsettled, tumultuous time. Settle down, take it easy, don't think big thoughts, just get through this moment. I can see that, it having therapeutic value. However, though, it comes at a great cost. And what I, what I maintain in, in this, this discussion this morning is that part of the adriftness that Galloway is talking about is a result of the negative consequences of Epicureanism in our society, as it was for Gnosticism and as it will be for Cynicism and so on. That what we're reaping now in our society, in which we're sort of coming apart and can't find a way to, you know, find a common denominator with others, definitely not with destiny and God, is that these ideas are becoming exhausted and they're not bringing the fruit that they promise. And here's one of the reasons, here are several of the reasons why I think Epicureanism is exhausting itself in our society. One, it has desacralized the world in disenchanted history. The world is not all that important. It's filled just with moments that we should relish in simple experiences. But there's no grand purpose to it. You desacralize the world. And in doing that, if you desacralize the world and just see it as common experiences, then how serious are you going to take other people? How serious will you take the previous generation or the following generation? How serious will you take great learning? How, how important it is? Well, it's not important at all. And human history is totally disenchanted. There's not one time better than others because there is no standard by which we can judge better or worse. Totally disenchanted. And we live in a disenchanted world without a rhyme or reason to it. I don't think we're cut out to do that. I don't think we're made as, as individuals and as people to so disenchant the world that we're not going to try to find something of permanent meaning in it. We're cut out to look for an aim that fulfills our pursuits of it. Not just to aim, but to find some sense of fulfillment. See, what, what Epicureanism wants is a journey. Okay. But I think really what we want, down deep, that drives us, and I think, you know, I, I guess we could make a good case for this, I believe I could, is that what we really want is fulfillment, is purpose, is something that can explain how there can be meaning in a time that is often meaningless. And also, this, the soul in Epicureanism really suffers. It, you must keep your soul basically non-committal. Just like Liz in Eat, Pray, and Love. She becomes unhappy with her marriage, and she leaves it. She becomes unhappy with her lover, and she leaves it. Don't be committed to anything so permanently that you have to suffer for it and struggle for it. Move on. Keep it light enough to travel. And then finally, and this to me is one of the, the worst consequences of hedonism, I mean, Epicureanism, is that who I am, myself, in that it's not about natural law, it's not about God's will, it's not about some sort of great moral purpose. Myself is just the experience of a pleasure ends up being just a mirror to the world. I have nothing to offer to it. I'm just a reflection of the pure moment. There's no me that makes the judgment about it. There's no me 
or actually technically it ought to be, there is no I, that is saying this is consistent with what I think would be a divine purpose, or this is consistent with what I think would be a moral fulfillment of the world. I become just a reflection, shallow. You know, what's the depth of a mirror? Well, that's what we become in Epicureanism. Now, finally, I've got a couple of minutes here. Uh, what do we have to say about this? What, what's the church's message? What should be our message as, Jesus, as, as, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as Christians? How do we relate to Epicureanism and this cultural conflict that we're in? I think it will always be relevant, and I think it will always be persuasive ultimately, if we show to people, because of our faith, because of our living tradition, that we, we experience in our worship, in our study, in our works, in our community, in communion with one another, that the soul is made to love God, others, and the world. The soul is constructed to love things, not just to experience things. You're at your best when you're committed to something of good value, honorable, noble, and of God. That's when we're at our best. We're designed to do that. This is human nature. We mess it up. We pervert it. We corrupt it. We misuse our will to do all sorts of hideous things to do it. But we are seeking happiness. We are seeking to love something. To bring the world into our hearts. That's what we're designed to do. We don't often succeed at it, but we're designed to do that. And I think a way to respond to this kind of disenchantment, desacralization that Epicureanism bequeaths our society is to, that the church can show how to really love things. That even though it may cause us this... Uh, I'll skip on down to number three. Even though love may cause us to suffer, and even though you may be taxed beyond your emotional capabilities, and you may bear scars, you know, physically and emotionally in your heart because of love, that's when we're at our best. We should not fear suffering. Now, of course, not all suffering is good. But love always requires some sense of sacrifice and suffering will qualify. In fact, isn't this at the very heart of our faith? What is the symbol of our faith? But a symbol of suffering, isn't it? The cross. That God so loved the world that He gave us His only begotten Son. If anyone knows how to suffer for the cost of love, if any living being, if any conscious, deliberate, intentional reality knows that the suffering that, is, that follows from love is worth it, it is God. In fact, if you... And I think I could make a case for this too, in that Christ is the incarnate Son of God, fully human, that if anyone knows how to love, if anyone knows how to suffer for love, it is God. If anyone knows how to really be human, it is God. Isn't that right? Isn't that our faith that Christ was fully human? And in that we see Christ suffering on behalf of a lost world to redeem and reconcile us to God and to one another and to the world, that we shouldn't shun this kind of suffering, that sometimes anxiety, sometimes inner pain, is a result of doing what's right. It's not that which we have to avoid. And I think we need to show that that we can be courageous in our suffering. We don't need to flee it, like Epicurus tell us. That, that, that shallowness is not the way to live a happy life. Because if you're shallow, you know, if you're just always moving on in your journey, you're not going to suffer because you never get invested enough to suffer. But God got invested. And what we show in our faith 
uh, to this is that we know how to rightly suffer. There can be something redemptive. The cross is the great example of that. And then, then I'll conclude with this. Instead of seeing life as a journey, I'll use this great biblical metaphor. Life's a pilgrimage. We're all pilgrims. We are going someplace, that's for sure. We're moving out and we're going to. But it's a meaningful, it's a, what, 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 what's the name of that book, Pilgrims? It is a progress. It's not a regress. Looking for God is an advancement. It is a move forward to fulfillment and to truth and the right thing. We're pilgrims on a way to a heavenly city. And we can you know, sing all those great hymns, Marching to Zion. That's a great hymn. That we can endure the whips and scorns of time, as Shakespeare would say. We can handle these frustrations and deal with the darkness of, 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 of the of the soul. We can deal with the darkness of human nature. Why is that? Because we're pilgrims and we have something to show to the world that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we can and we must endure because at the end we will experience the great bliss of being called into the heavenly city, not made by hands of men, but by God. And that is, I think, the gospel message to our contemporary society. Just a couple of minutes I have to go, or we have to conclude this. Anyone have a comment or a question you want to bring up? Yeah, if you're an Epicurean, it's hard to take history seriously. It's disenchanted. Yeah. Why, why perpetrate it if it's not all that interesting? Yes? The difference between them? Hedonism? Now, hedonism is a pleasure principle. Uh, and also Epicureanism is a pleasure principle. So in some ways, they're similar. As a movement, though, they're dissimilar. Hedonism is where you, as what I call rampant hedonism, is that you overindulge your pleasures. At all costs, pursuit of pleasure. That's right, regardless of the consequences. Uh, Epicureanism says it has to be done in moderation, and therefore you should exercise prudence in doing that. You should seek pleasure like good food, a good shelter, good friends, and so on, but not so much that it costs you. It could have. I'm I'm quite sure that Paul came across Epicurean ideas. Yeah, I'm quite sure. Because Epicurus died in 270 B.C., and it was prevalent in the Roman world. I mean, it, it spread. Stoicism spread. Cynicism spread. I'm sure he came across it, and he was dealing with this you know, constantly. And you're right, it's the revelation of God in Christ that is our answer. Okay, thank you very much. Bless you, and I'll see you next Sunday. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.